today, page 35, issue 7 in our God's Views of the News, as you see at the top of the page, is divorce and what the Bible teaches about divorce. Now, let me throw in a disclaimer as we delve into this issue. Undoubtedly, in a, a group this size, there are folks that have gone through the pain of divorce. And it is never my objective in teaching the Word of God to add to anyone's pain unnecessarily. So our objective in this lesson, as is always the case, is to find out what God says about a particular uh, issue. And that's what we'll do today, do our best to see what God has to say about this important issue of, of divorce. And uh, I think you would agree, or I trust you would agree, with the conclusion that we have at the bottom of page 36, that really no divorce happens apart from some sin in somebody. <laughs> now, if you've gone through that and you had someone who, who left you or who cheated on you or, or whatever it may have been or was abusive to you, then uh, this may have been through no fault of your own. Uh, and that's certainly, that's certainly possible. But there was still sin, it just wasn't yours. It was somebody else's. And the truth of the matter is divorce never occurs without sin on somebody's part. If there wasn't sin on somebody's part, there would have been no divorce. To put that another way, if everybody would follow what God has to say about marriage, then we wouldn't have divorce. And therefore, teaching about divorce and what God has to say about it is important to keep marriages together. Presumably you are here because you care about what God has to say. That's what we do here is our level best to say this is what God teaches about particular issues in his word, in this case divorce, and if those teachings are followed, there won't be a divorce. So for those of you that are and have gone through that pain, assuming you agree with all that I just said, then it, I trust it delights you to be in a place that upholds God, God's word, wants to teach what the Bible says about whatever subject matter is at hand, in this case, divorce, and with the goal of preventing the pain that you have gone through in the lives of, of others. So that's what we're going to do today, beginning on page 35. And we say at the top of page 35, rampant divorce is a symptom of our culture's moral sickness. Now, what... What is the root? If, if divorce is the symptom, then what are some of the roots? Well, as I just alluded, and we say explicitly at the conclusion at the end of page 36, that the ultimate root is sin, but the proximate cause, the ultimate cause is just sin, but, but there are particular things that uh, people do in sinning that then result in the symptom of divorce. But divorce is just that. It is a consequence of something larger, something deeper. So what are the manifestations of sin, then, that give rise to divorce? And we could make a long list of these, undoubtedly, but let me just give you a couple. One of the reasons, as we say in that top paragraph on page 35, that divorce has increased in the last 15 years 700% in America. Now, why? Well, one of the reasons is undoubtedly that America is becoming increasingly individualistic. It's about looking out for number one. Life is about me and my satisfaction and my happiness, not other people. 
And to the extent that people adopt an individualistic mindset, then marriage is going to become dispensable. Marriage gets difficult, which every marriage has points at which that happens. That becomes dispensable when pressed against a mindset that says it is about me and my well-being and my happiness. Individualism and individualistic mindset that increasingly Americans have adopted undoubtedly contributes to the root manifestations of sin that are evidenced in divorce. But here's another one. A false, an absolutely false definition of what love is. We live in a culture who has no earthly idea what true love really is from a biblical standpoint. Love in our culture is almost, if not completely identified with emotion and feeling. Love is romantic love. And when the feeling and the emotion wane, when you don't have the same feelings five years after you were married, or better, seven years, there's a reason they call it the seven-year, what? The seven-year itch. Five to ten years after someone's married, the truth is, feelings and emotions change. doesn't mean they have to be gone, and I, and I, tr- and I hope they're not. But they're different. It's different than when you two were swinging on the porch, singing together, talking about your future, and now you're five years into your future. And we've got bills, and perhaps we have kids, and we've got the cares of the world, and maybe some sickness has come, and lots of challenges have come to us. And now what is your, love, your marriage based on? What definition of love carries that marriage forward? And our culture would say, After the feeling is gone, the love is gone. In fact, we've got songs that say, After the love is gone, why did you lead me on? And then, you know, I hear that and I go, So where'd the love go? After the love is gone, what do you mean? But of course, what they mean is the feeling, the emotion. But the Bible's definition of love is, is completely different than that. For God so loved the world... And how is that love manifest? He loved the world that he did what? He gave. Okay? So, you know, those great theologians, the monkeys, say, I thought love was more or less a giving thing, a given thing, however they say it. It seems the more I gave, the less I got. So they got it partly right. I thought love was more or less a gift. Well, you're right about that. Then they add this other part that says, but if I give, I'm supposed to get. So love in the Bible is not only giving, but it is giving unconditionally. Our friends the monkeys give conditionally, apparently. I'll give as long as I get. So a biblical definition of love is, first, it's a a verb. It is, is what we do. God so loved the world that he gave. Further, the chapter in the Bible that is devoted to love, many of you know which chapter that is, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called the love chapter. In verses 4 through 7 of that chapter, often read at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, and love is not self-seeking, and so on. It always trusts, it always perseveres, it always protects. 
But notice all of those descriptions of biblical love, love are all things that love does or love avoids doing. They're not feelings. So unlike the culture, the Bible teaches that love is doing, and here's a working definition of biblical love, love is doing what is in the best interests of another. That's what biblical love is. Now, if you have two people who do that, there are marvelous feelings and emotions that go with that. But those emotions do not define love. They certainly are not the primary feature of biblical love. Biblical love is about what we commit to doing on behalf of others. So, back to the top of page 35, why is this symptom so rampant in our culture? Well, because at its root, we have an individualistic culture and we have a false definition of what true love is. Top of page 35, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. It's a little bit lower than that now, but just a little bit. And children are involved more than half the time. No-fault divorce laws make it easy to obtain. And in the last several years, there have been approximately one million divorces in our country. As I mentioned over the last, I said 15, over the last 50 years, the divorce rate has increased 700%. In addition, the divorce rate among churched people is nearly the same as that for the unchurched. Now, how can you, how can you square that? Well, we know that many churches do not believe the Bible to be God's inerrant word and do not preach the gospel. I, at least I know that. Are you all aware of that? <laughs> but it's really true that there are lots of churches around whose official doctrinal statement does not believe the Bible to be without error. A hundred years ago, and almost exactly a hundred years ago, there was a movement that began and, and a controversy within church circles called the fundamentalist, and it was called the modernist, fundamentalist modernist controversy. Modernist is another word for liberal. And it was basically those who believe the Bible versus those who don't. And part of what brought this controversy about, a major part, was just a few decades earlier, Charles Darwin had come out with a book, Origin of Species, that challenged the Bible's teaching about origins and creation. And many theologians began to adopt an evolutionary view of origins and thus couldn't square that with the Bible, so the Bible must be wrong. So therefore, the Bible must have errors in it. Well, we covered the issue of evolution a few weeks ago, issue number two in your notebook. And science can be indeed squared with the Bible uh, without much trouble. Evolution can't be squared with the Bible, but science can. And I explained that in issue number issue two. So you had that controversy. You have many churches that deny that the Bible is God's word without error in it. And if you attend a church like that, well then, what basis do you have for staying in a difficult marriage? Who is it that's going to tell you? What moral foundation and authority do you have that tells you that you should or you must? And so that's not just a... Uh, that's not just a passing statement. That's a true statement. Many churches do not believe the Bible to be God's inerrant word and do not preach the gospel. And many church members are not Christians in the genuine sense. So what accounts for cr people in church 
having nearly the same divorce rate as people who are not in church? Well, one, many of them go to churches who don't believe the Bible. And they don't preach the gospel, and therefore people aren't converted. They're not genuinely Christians. But in any church, including this one, of course, I have no way of knowing ultimately who is genuinely a believer and who is not. And so there could be people in Bible-believing and gospel-preaching churches who are, not, who are not saved as well. And so those certainly are factors that contribute to that. But I would simply say this, that the biggest danger for the church is not that the church is in the world. As you've heard me say before, the biggest danger for the church is the world being in the church. And so the other reason that divorce is so high amongst churched people is the worldliness that we have absorbed from the culture. And you've heard me say a number of times, you will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. And many Christians have become lax with regard to identifying consciously and intentionally where my values derive from. When that's the case, you will unconsciously absorb your values from the culture. And too many churched people, Christian or otherwise, have done that. So what does the Bible then say about divorce? Page 35. God's rule is marriage for life. God gave away the first bride. He established marriage. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not a man-made institution. It is a divinely given institution. And God gave it in the second chapter of the Bible. The man said, after God presented the, gave away the first bride to Adam, Adam replies, Eve is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is God's intention from the very beginning. One man, one woman, for one lifetime. That's God's intention. And that's the in intention that we will seek to uphold at our church while at the same time seeking to serve those who have had the unfortunate experience of going through a divorce. One man. One woman, one lifetime. God says in Malachi 2, I hate divorce. Jesus said in Matthew 19 in your New Testament, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so God's rule is marriage is for life. One man and one woman for one lifetime together. Now, there are some implications of that for us that I'd like to hit, and then we'll go on to a couple of exceptions in which it's my understanding that God does allow for a divorce, too. But before we go to that, since God's rule is marriage for life, what I tell young people that we do premarital counseling with is, you need to establish a rule at the very beginning of your marriage that the word divorce will not cross your lips. You each make a commitment. We won't joke about divorce. We will not talk about divorce. We won't say divorce. Here's why. Because divorce ain't an option. And since it's not an option, don't talk about it. We will not entertain the notion of a divorce in our marriage. My wife and I just celebrated our 25th on February 1st. 
And I think it is true that in 25 years, we have never used the word divorce to each other. Because somebody wisely told us that when we got married. What I now tell other young people. Don't say it. It is not a threat. It is not a joke. It does not cross your lips. If God's rule is marriage for life, then we don't talk divorce. It's not an option. Further, another implication of that is this. When God lays out stuff like that for us, friends, it gives us parameters within which to make our decisions. In other words, it boxes us in to tell us things that are not alternatives for us. It gives us a path in which God expects us to stay, and if we do that, it's very helpful to us. Now, here's what I mean. You get married, and you run into difficulty. You find out that he was not the knight in shining armor that you thought he was. He's still okay, but he's really quite a pain in the neck. Or you find out that she's not the princess that she made herself out to be. And reality hits. And we now have to get along together in this, in this marriage. And, you know, you go to work and you make the mistake. Actually, you commit the sin of talking about your spouse to people at work. And if you do this, I'm trying to be very clear about it. You don't talk about your spouse to other people. But people do it. They go to work and they run around and they talk derogatorily and it gets to be kind of a game and my old lady said this and I can't believe what she, you know, or he. And then, you know, the girls, you know, at lunch are all saying, oh, tell me about it. You should have seen what my guy did and, you know, and all of that. It becomes a little game. Well, the Bible, the Bible calls that slander <laughs> and gossip. That's why it's a sin. So, so you shouldn't do it, but you do it. And then somebody says, well, that's why I had to get a divorce. Or that's why I, had to move, I just had to move out. You know? And now you start, inter- you start entertaining that. Well, and then you get confused. You know, you go to church... And you hear Brown say stuff like God says, you know, one woman, one man, one lifetime. And you used to believe that, but now it's a little confusing. What used to be really clear now is a bit foggy to you. Go figure. And my point is is that when we hold to God's clear standards, it keeps us within parameters in our decision-making. There are certain things that are simply not alternatives. They are not options. So whatever difficulties we're going through, my decision-making process has to be, we're going to get this thing fixed. We're going to work on this. I am in this for the long haul. Why? Because God says I am. That's that. End of discussion. But I get people who come who know better, who've heard what we're talking about now. And they say, you know, i got to talk, and you know, I'm, I'm just really wondering if this is really what God wants for me. What do you mean you're wondering if this is what God wants for me? Has he committed one of the two exceptions that the Bible gives that might allow a divorce? No. Well, then we know the answer to this, don't we? We know what God's will is for you if you are married. God's will is for you to remain married. How do we know that? Because God tells us His will. He wrote it. He's got a book that contains His will. And so you don't have to say, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe we should never... Maybe I married the wrong person, you know, and maybe this has just been wrong from the start. How many times have you heard people do that? I hear it. 
More times than I care to count. But when we hold to God's standard, it keeps us within biblical parameters. Divorce is not an option with these two exceptions. And let's look at them. God's exceptions. Unfaithfulness and abandonment. Marital unfaithfulness is the first one. And it goes back to the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy 24, which says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. What is that all about? (laughs) Well, notice how many times the word if is used in those four verses. If, it starts with if, if a man marries. So here's a situation that Moses, who wrote this, is laying out. Here's a particular situation. If a woman marries, a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, saying, and if, notice, after she leaves his house, and then you've got another if in the fifth line, excuse me, the, yeah, the fifth line down. So these are all a conditional situation that might arise. And if all of that stuff happens, there's one command there. The original guy doesn't get to just shop around and say, I'll take you back again. That's what it's saying. That's all it's saying. Now, here's why that's important. Because the incidentals of the situation that's being described, like in line number two, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, notice, something indecent about her. This is just describing a what if this happens. It is not saying... It's okay for you to divorce if you find something you don't like. Because it's an if clause. It's not an imperative. It's not a command. It is not saying you have the right to divorce if you find something you don't like in your your wife. But if a guy does that, and then she gets married to someone else, and he does the same thing, the first guy doesn't get to have her back. That's what that's about. Now, here's why that's important. Bottom of page 35. By the time of Jesus, about 1,400 years after Moses wrote this, it was common for Jewish men to put away their wives based on a loose interpretation of something indecent. So instead of this being just conditional clauses describing a situation and simply saying the first guy doesn't get her back, that's the one command, the first guy doesn't get her back, they've got commands all the way through this thing. And permissions all the way through this thing that I get to divorce her and it's legitimate for me to divorce her because there's something I don't like about her. So by the time of Jesus, that was the interpretation of many, many. In fact, top of page 36, there were two schools of thought that had developed. Rabbi Hillel and his followers taught from that passage that divorce was lawful for virtually any reason. I'm not making this up. Burning a meal. 
So something indecent, something displeases me. She's not getting a hot meal out there on time the way I like it. That's grounds for divorce, said they. Another school of thought, Rabbi Shammai, believed divorce could be legitimate only for sexual impurity. And as was often the case in Jesus' earthly ministry, his opponents sought to trap him by forcing him to choose between those two. And here's the passage in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, now notice this phrase, any and every reason. Why? Because they're asking about the Hillel school. Hillel says, any and every reason. Burn the meal, whatever. And they're saying, where are you on this, Jesus? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses, now notice this, command... But Moses didn't command. Moses says, if that happens, here's the deal. The first guy doesn't get her back. That's it. Well, why did... And and Jesus then replies, Moses didn't command. Moses permitted, Moses laid this out because your hearts were hard, because people were doing this. And so now he's regulating to say, we've got a wife mart going on here. Guys are divorcing their wives for whatever they feel like and then deciding they want them back. And because of that, Moses laid down regulations. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, and then Jesus says this, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well, if that's the situation, (laughs) do you see what they say? It's better not to get married. I, I thought I could stay in the market. And, and so they got it that Jesus is laying down an extremely narrow rule for marriage based upon his intention going all the way back to the beginning. One man, one woman, one lifetime, except marital unfaithfulness. Now, why accept marital unfaithfulness? Well, what Jesus quotes there is what we quoted on page 35, Genesis chapter 2. A man shall be united with his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. And that one flesh provision refers to the intimate unity that a a man has with a woman within the bonds of marriage, including the sexual intimacy of that bond. And that is so important that it is that it is singled out in Genesis chapter 2 they shall become one flesh a reference to their physical intimacy in marriage that is so important that when that is violated the marriage covenant has been broken so that's why Jesus says except for marital unfaithful the one flesh provision is that is that serious hmm well Don't we live in an overly sexualized society? And it's funny in sitcoms, on TV, as people sleep around, cheat, swap, all kinds of stuff. 
Let me tell you something, Christian friend. That stuff is not for you. That is not for your eyes and that is not for your ears. There is nothing edifying about that for you as a Christian. Nothing. But that's the kind of society we live in. And so we get people who have flings. But they can count on, Jesus says, forgive. And they come to Pastor Brown and they say, I cheated on my wife or I cheated on my husband. But I've asked him or her to forgive me. And they're saying they're getting a divorce. So set them straight. And I say, they can do that. You've got to be kidding me. I thought you wanted to uphold the sanctity of marriage. I do want to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And hear this. I believe letting people know you do that, it's over, upholds the sanctity of marriage. You don't get to go and have flings after you commit to your wife or your husband. You don't. You don't have that option. Further, Jesus is the one who said there's an exception. When you see it says, except for Maryland faithfulness, right? You see that. I didn't make that up. John MacArthur tells a story. John MacArthur agrees with me. Actually, I agree with John MacArthur. He's smarter than I am, by far. But he said, tells a story of being at a uh, retreat center years ago, and there wa- he and Bill Gothard, you all know who Bill Gothard is? Stay away from Bill Gothard's stuff. But anyway, but he was at this retreat center with Gothard years ago, and Gothard is someone who says there are no grounds ever for a divorce, including marital unfaithfulness. And so uh, Gothard is walking with MacArthur, and he says to MacArthur, so what do you think about uh, the exception clause? I'm talking about this. And MacArthur says, what do, you, what do you mean? What do I think about it? I mean, there is one. <laughs> that's, what, that's his first answer. And then Gothard says, well, no, I don't think there is one. He goes, what do you mean? Jesus said, except. There is an exception clause. I mean, you might disagree about what it means, but there is one. He did say that. And then Gothard says, look, see those geese over there? In that pen? If somebody puts a hole in that fence, all the geese are going to get out. If you give a loophole, if you make an exception, all the geese are going to get out. And then uh, MacArthur says to him, Bill... What does Matthew 19 mean without any geese? Forget the geese. Forget the hole in the fence. What does Matthew 19 mean if you don't have any geese? And Jesus says, except for marital unfaithfulness. Further, when he says except for marital unfaithfulness, the word, the Greek word is porneia. We get our English word pornography from it. You see, there's more than one way to to be maritally unfaithful. It refers to sexual sin. And ladies in particular, you need to know that I tell your men this. You can't mess around. You don't get to mess around with pornography. You You don't get to feast your mind and your eyes on other women. You gave yourself to one woman. In intimate union with her, period. And so men, and the reason I say men is because men are 
the major offenders with their eyes. Men are visually stimulated more than women. So let that be a warning to us and a reminder to us men. And here's the other exception to it, and that is abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Now notice in parentheses there it says, Not I but the Lord. Now why? He's going to say in the next line, To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Now what's that about? What Paul is saying is when Jesus walked the earth, the Lord spoke to this issue of divorce and and remarriage. And the Lord said, I don't have to say it, the Lord's already said it, that it's one man, one woman for one lifetime except for marital unfaithfulness. But now I am saying this, and the Lord did not speak to this. We don't have this recorded in the Gospels. So I am saying this. Now let me just stop and ask you, is what Paul says here as authoritative as your red-letter edition Bible in the Gospels? Some of you have heard me say, every time I buy a new Bible, I try to find one that's not a red-letter edition. Just to remind me of what we're saying here. That every word in the Bible is equally authoritative. Every last word of the Bible is God's word. And the stuff in red letters is no more authoritative than the stuff in black letters. So Paul says this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's not a believer, he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife sanctified through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound. In such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. Now, here's what's going on in Corinth such that Paul needed to write that. You have a pagan city into which Paul has come and preached in Acts chapter 18. And he gives the gospel of Christ. Jesus told him, he appeared to him and said, Paul, go and preach to this city because I have many people there. Do you all remember that? And he did. He went and preached and many people came to the Lord. But those people were married to people who were still pagans. Well, now what do I do? That's one of the questions. Do I remain married or now that I'm a Christian, should I find a Christian husband or wife? And the answer is, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, you do not divorce them. But if they leave you, then you're not bound in that circumstance. That's what's being said. Now, the whole thing about the unbelieving wife being sanctified and your children being holy, what's that about? Sanctified and holy are the same word. They mean set apart. And all it means is, if you have one believer in a household, that household is set apart from the majority of households in the world that have no believers in them. That's it. doesn't mean your kids are saved. doesn't mean they're going to heaven. It means they're privileged to be in a house with at least one Christian parent. Now note at the bottom there, the one seeking to dissolve the marriage is an unbeliever. And it's assumed that believers seek to keep the marriage intact And they're commanded to do so in this passage. So sometimes people will say, okay, an unbeliever wants to leave. What if a believer abandons me? My answer is believers don't do that. And if they do, it's an evidence they're not a believer. Because we will have warned them. 
If some guy or some gal moves out of their house and they say, I'm a believer, but I'm leaving my spouse, and they don't have grounds to do that, then we have Matthew 18. We go to them, we take two or three others, and we say, you can't do this. And if they say, I'm doing it anyway, then Jesus says, you treat them as a publican and a tax collector if they're not a believer. So the assumption is throughout the thing, believers do what God says. It's only the unbeliever who would depart. What's the application then of all of this? God's design, one man, one woman for one lifetime. The marriage union should not be entered into lightly. That's why premarital counseling is absolutely a must. And that is why I say in the ceremonies that I perform, and I tell the young people that I counsel, the number one cause of divorce is not what people tell you. It's not finances, it's not communication, it's not your sex life, it's not all that. The number one cause of divorce is marriage. But I'm not just being funny. It's what people think about marriage when they go into it. And if you don't have that right when you go into it, you're in great, you, you don't have a solid foundation. But if you have the right idea of marriage when you go into it, you now have a foundation upon which to build. should not be entered into lightly. Divorce always involves sin. It may not be your sin if you've been divorced, as I said, but it's somebody's sin. It's not commanded, but it's allowed. In other words, if somebody commits adultery, you don't have to divorce them. And I would love to see reconciliation take place. And that should be our first impulse. But it is not required. And if the person says, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue divorce under those two circumstances, they are within their biblical rights to do that. Okay? All right, let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for the blessings of this day to be with your people, to sing praise to you, to look into the pages of your word. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this issue and in the, in the immoral culture, increasingly immoral culture in which we live. Lord, help us to be ever mindful that we are your people, that we are to be set apart, we are to be different in our value systems, that we are not individualistic that we have a definition of love that is your definition of love, and we pursue that in our relationships, in our marriages, and with our children, that it is doing what's in the best interest of another. And as a result of that, help us to have homes that are based on a different foundation, the solid foundation of the truth of the Word of God, and may that be a beacon of light in an otherwise dark world. I pray for those who are here right now who might be struggling. I pray for anyone who might be struggling with temptation that they will heed the warning of the Lord of glory to remember the wife of their youth or the husband of their youth and, and help them to remember that the, the intimacy between a husband and, and woman is a sacred thing before God. And I pray, Lord, that we won't rationalize away your truth, but we'll live as radically obedient Christians who give legs to the truth that we say we believe with our mouths. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. Help us to be ambassadors for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.